So, toilet paper, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it 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 um I went from store to store all nimbly pimbly trying to find toilet paper and I do have a final option. It involves going to the organic hippie store where the toilet paper is made out of I don't know what, pine cones? It's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's the all natural hemp literally just hemp leaves it's not even processed oh gosh well at least hemp leaves would have a medicinal effect i feel like my toilet paper should come with like a free <laughs> roll of, of preparation <laughs> a medicinal <base>. effect <laughs> I, i'm imagining wiping your butt with those leaves and that's i don't think it works like that <laughs> i mean can you imagine that can you get high through your butt now with that's... cbd oil <laughs> I got so much THC coming in there, I just used the restroom, guys. I mean, I've heard about butt chugging, but this is a whole new thing. <laughs> oh, no! This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 26. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. It's the show that brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss American foreign policy and how it relates to issues here at home. Our goal is to make American foreign policy exciting, interesting, and easy to understand for the everyday person. Today, we are once again joined in the virtual studio by esteemed contributor Stephen Howard. Marhaba. And Matthew spencer Coisiel. Howdy. And I just want to say for the record, we've been doing this distance thing since the very beginning, so, you know. We are kind of the uh cool kids on the block we have a uh, sip our coffees before they're too cold and yeah we're the ogs in this so you know no big deal doing it before it was cool <laughs> people can't see it but i'm wearing a beret right now people can't see it but i'm wearing nothing right now so <laughs> <laughs> be sure to check out our website at orientalexpress.com to read more about the team so this week's episode is about what else the giant global pandemic that is rampaging through the world and causing unprecedented economic, political, and social anxiety. Governments are reacting in a ton of different ways, and you can see our latest blog post for more about that, especially the differences between like what authoritarian governments are doing, what more democratic governments are doing, how those are different, and, and kind of how it impacts you. Um, but let's talk first about the global and domestic economics of all of this, because as we all know, the economy is basically at a standstill right now throughout pretty much the entire world. Supply chains are halted, people are staying at home, entire industries are suspended for weeks, if not months at a time. So I guess my question to all of you guys is, what could the U.S. do to mitigate these efforts, both at home and abroad, and just what are your thoughts in general about where we are now and where we might end up? You know, I, I, I gotta say, to start off the debate, or the debate, the conversation, I apologize. This is entirely my fault. I am a huge proponent of globalism. I'm a huge proponent of free trade. And this pandemic is brought to you by globalism and free trade. We get everything everywhere. It's How uh, could you? This is all your fault. I apologize. That's why I'm apologizing. I, I feel like this shouldn't be held against me now that I've apologized for it. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it's... But it, it, this is the modern economy. It's modern economy goes everywhere. Um, what you're seeing is a lot of these countries that are getting infected faster, um, except for the case of Iran, which is actually kind of strange in that regard. 
is they are the most globalized countries. It's the economy chains that were the most connected to China, which in that case isn't the most strange when it comes to Iran. But you have the European Union, the United States, all these countries that do a lot of business with China and have a lot of trade, uh, both in labor and in uh, supplies. And it's I'm not saying that uh, China could have... Pres- I'll get to China later. But basically, that global economy is being brought to a screeching halt because the less trade and the less global trade we do at this point in time, it, the more we uh, actually, I guess, halt the spread of this coronavirus. And you have multiple countries. China has all but closed their foreign borders right now. Uh, there are multiple countries in the European Union who are looking at closing their borders. There, are, It's... They're trying to halt the spread. I think it's uh, Poland has completely closed their borders to everyone coming in to halt the spread of this. And if you halt that um, spread of people going from one place to another, you're going to completely handicap the globalist economy that we have right now or the globalism that we have right now, I should say. Well, I mean, if you're arguing that uh, globalism is facilitating it, I suppose that could be why you're explaining the relatively low number of cases for russia unless the unless you're a proponent of the more more reasonable i mean the question is is that more reasonable or is it just that russia's vastly under reporting or under diagnosing whoa whoa whoa. definitely vastly under reporting there was a tweet that just came out this morning that or a, a report that just came out this morning russia has completely locked down moscow completely locked down you're not allowed to go more than 100 meters away from your house unless you have a special permit so they can say all they want about oh yeah there's nothing happening in russia yeah no no it's just an authoritarian state under reporting vastly and again i will get back to that when it comes to china but i am very upset at authoritarian states over this entire thing i mean they have the advantage implementing uh policies to policies and strategies to counter uh, the spread of these uh, pandemics, but they also have the power to just lie, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a two, it's a two edged sword. Cause you know, the U S we, we love our freedom so much that we don't have a single national strategy to counter it. And I think we're grudgingly <laughs> adopting a uniform strategy in all 50 States, but it took a while. We didn't do it fast enough. And as you guys have heard in the news, you know, Donald Trump is bad-mouthing states while at the same time using the federal government to over and outbid uh, smaller governments when they're trying to buy vital life-saving supplies. So, you know, we're, we're more conflicted as a country in terms of fighting the disease. You know, we're not as unified as, like, maybe South Korea or Taiwan. And that's a problem. Sure, and I know. Oh, I sorry. mean, you know, but you might be right about globalism again, because according to this John Hawkins maps, there's zero cases in North Korea. It's true. There's zero <laughs> they, cases in North Korea, and that is all 100% correct. Huh? Okay, yeah, guys, if we really are just going to start quoting authoritarian regimes and taking them at their word that their state-controlled media is accurately <laughs> reporting that they're somehow immune to this virus, then, um, I mean, we may as well close up shop right now, because we're going to lose most of our credibility. <laughs> Yep, and well, and most places should because they haven't taken China at face value when they're reporting this stuff. They're taking Russia at face value. I saw a report by CNN straight from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying, "Hey, 
Russia's got this completely in hand. Putin has got this completely in hand. It's like, did you do no critical work on this? Do you not know what Russia is? I mean, to be fair, we shouldn't even take the U.S. values at face value. Not because we're lying about them. Because, I mean, I think we're genuinely reporting them accurately. It's just there's no testing. Well, there's not no testing, but there's functionally no good testing except for the most critical cases. Like in, in my state, in Minnesota, mm-hmm. basically only the most severe cases get testing. And even the governor himself oh, had yeah, to admit that states, yeah. we can't test everyone. We can't even test most people. It's just the worst of the worst. So so it's it's a problem for different reasons for us. Well, I was about to say, that's a fundamentally different problem. It is. Though. It is a different problem. But still, it's underreporting everywhere. There are ways to analyze... Um, how countries that might not be as open to free information there are there are multiple ways to analyze how they're doing like you can use satellite imagery and look at how much traffic there is in china and if there's been a dramatic drop or if there's been a massive reduction in the carbon outputs from china that kind of indicates how they're reacting to the coronavirus they might say everything's fine but if the factories are shuttered you know that that explains how their domestic response is really transpiring but that's in a very meta way, and it's uh, so I I actually uh, pulled up a report so I could quote it uh, verbatim um, from Vi- uh, Radio Free Asia. Kaolong uh, reported that there are, although China's official death toll is two thousand five hundred and thirty-five, there are most uh, most reports of people trying to do this analysis say there are between forty and forty-six thousand people that have died in China due to this outbreak. There is literally no way to confirm those other than, I guess I heard one report that a lot of uh, cell phone companies are seeing people not renew their cell phone contracts, which is a symptom, I guess. But China is amazing at covering this stuff up. You're never going to know how many people actually died in China. And the problem with that is not just that they are hiding the information from the world, but they hid exactly what this virus could do from the world. So people weren't as, I guess, afraid of how it should have been. They're like, oh, well, China, if, if China can do this, look, they have like, what, a couple hundred people dead. They locked down one city. They got this under control. We can easily get it under control. And then it gets out and they go, China completely lied about how deadly this virus is and how virulent or virulent this virus is we now, now i'm imagining a chinese government official with a fake mustache or a groucho marx kind of set up going to yeah. your local um corner bodega and like you know buying ten thousand accounts worth of credits on his phone card just to kind of fudge right? the stats like oh no everyone's <laughs> renewing their phone cards now you know well i mean <laughs> at this point the raw numbers of it, you know, trying to compare numbers is like, it's kind of a worthless pissing match at this point, like, because it's just, it's bad and it's bad everywhere. And, and that's, that's the problem though, is that since we don't have any of this information, we can't properly predict out into the future. I mean, so many companies right now are, they're cutting workers, they're cutting salaries, they're doing just these, these massive hedging maneuvers to try to predict something to try to maybe save some of their capital and see if they can weather this but we have no good data at this point and until we have some solid data and st- until we have you know enough testing everywhere and we have a really good clear picture of what where this is going to end up 
I mean, the, the entire global economy will be in complete limbo until then. And then after we have that data, we can finally start to plan ahead and maybe, you know, work around this. The privileged few of us who have cushy office jobs can just work at home and, you know, it is whatever. But for so many people out there, they can do nothing until this is resolved. So yeah. the economy is still at a standstill and will be for weeks, if not months. And I think that it's uh, it's important to say that a lot of this economic impact is going to be felt by people not like myself, not like Nick, not like Matt, but people that bartenders, people who can't go to work. I, I have a sister-in-law basically who she can't go to work anymore. She's a bartender and she is out of work completely. She doesn't know how long she's going to be out of work. She doesn't know if the place that she's going to go back to is still going to be open. Um, my sister is a teacher in Boston, so she's still going to have a job, but she's having to try to do all this distance teaching and all this distance. It's fundamentally changing the economy. And I will say there is a silver lining to that. The fundamental changing of the economy is pushing us more to a digitized economy, which definitely don't get me on that tangent. I can, there are a lot of problems with that because there's a lot of security issues with that. But that also means that we are, there's a lot of old dogs out there who would never countenance their employees working remotely because they need to be in office. There are a lot of old dogs out there that wouldn't countenance all these transactions happening online from remote locations. And now you're forced to. And not only are they forced to, but they're forced to see it can work. And that is going to help modernize so many economies, um, especially these first world nations who are just lagging in modernization for whatever reason, like the United States, like the European Union, and not so much like China, who mostly has manufacturing jobs. You're not going to have as much old dog pushing back against you need to be in the office sort of thing. They are still going to keep going, but the economies are going to, I guess, digitize for a lot of first world nations. Right now, we're kind of in the panic mode where anybody who can stay at home is supposed to stay at home. People who are not essential are going to um, basically be furloughed or, you know, laid off, if you would. Because, we, you know, we're going from an economy where people are only like one or two percent unemployment. Three percent to suddenly three and a half million people trying to make claims in one week. You know that is a massive number of the workforce. Um, but yeah, like you said, a lot of some people are lucky. Some people are lucky that they could be paid while they're on leave or they take their work home. So some of us are lucky that we're still getting paid, um, but a lot of us aren't. Yeah, no, I'd I'd say I mean, you know, I'll be the first to admit I'm very fortunate that. My job, I've been working remotely since I started it almost a year ago, and most of my team is full-time remote and was even before, so it wasn't a huge problem for us, and, and my industry is, is language translation, so it's already done remotely with linguists all over the world who work from their own homes, so I mean, both our demand and our supply chain is already like really uniquely well-positioned for this, but that's an extremely unique situation. For the vast majority of people, the real problem here isn't, I mean, the real problem is what's happening right now, but the almost even bigger problem is what's going to happen after this is done. Because now the big push will be for automation, especially in like, yes. I mean, yes. grocery store workers, they're essential right now and they absolutely are. But you just wait and see once 
the dust settles on all this, how many of those positions are just going to be automated out? They're going to say, this is a risk that we can't take anymore, so we're done. And and then there's so many more people who will never even be able to get their job back at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many things can be automated now that you're not even thinking of? Everything. Like, I mean, with AI, my job could be automated and I work from home. I work doing a whole bunch of, uh, I, I'm not going to get into what I do for work, but my job could definitely be automated if you tried hard enough, but it can be automated. Anyone's job can be automated. The only jobs that cannot be automated are the ones that require creativity. And those jobs are also the jobs that you have one for every, what, 25 companies? So yeah. it's, there's not a lot of them. Yeah. Checkout, grocery store checkout clerks, that's going to get automated. Um, McDonald's, that's automated. Like, I mean, so many, so many industries now are going to accelerate that. And so unemployment is going to be a major, major issue. I mean, I don't think that this, obviously this isn't going to be the last time that the government is going to have to send out some type of basic income. But I think even once this is over, we might start to see more of a push for that. Because as people start to look at it and go, we just don't have the jobs anymore to sustain this. Well, and I want to point out also that this isn't a new trend. This is accelerating an already existing trend. The trend towards automation is unstoppable. This isn't something that the coronavirus is just creating. And I mean, (laughs) I made so much fun of Andrew Yang. You have no idea how much fun I made of Andrew Yang, but he is right. The automation is coming, and we do need to work on our economy to prepare for automation. I don't completely agree with everything he's saying, but people need to focus on that. We're not going to bring back manufacturing jobs. You're basically talking about how we're <laughs> we're, we're revolving towards Andrew Yang's America. I mean, I would imagine, Stephen. I would imagine it's probably the universal basic income that you disagree with him on. It's, it's probably yeah. close to the universal yeah. universal basic income. Yeah, that's that's a tough sell for for most for most of America. Though, I mean, obviously, it makes total sense to do this current stimulus, which has happened now, because yes. it's, you're right, Stephen, it's not, this, this virus isn't actually creating any new problems. All it's doing is just exacerbating every problem that we already had and taking it to 100. I mean, people living paycheck to paycheck, that was already a serious problem. And now it's, yes. now it's a dire problem. One that yes that that we can't come back from without some type of stimulus. I think UBIs wouldn't be such a hard sell. A lot of economic conservatives like it because it's the I don't. Well, <laughs> you have face it. You know, capitalism is predicated on constant growth, and we have surplus human beings, but they're kind of also important to capitalism. So if you have UBI, it's essentially an anti-poverty measure that lets the rest of the world function without necessarily feeling uh, that they're getting their hands dirty by, you know, intentionally creating some sort of, I don't know, neo-Malthusian terrorscape where everything's automated and people starve. Sure, but we also don't need to go down the road to a brave new world where everyone's just handed their pills for the day and go about the go about your way because the world can take care of itself. You need to find that in between, between those two places. And I don't think UBI, don't get me wrong. I think the government needs to do something and has a very important role to play in the coming uh, managing of the transition to automation. 
but I don't think UBI is the best way to handle that. So, I think it is a way to handle it, but not the best way. So probably you would say that you're probably more a proponent of the more liberal progressive route of just basically continuing the welfare system, where you're really only giving stuff to people who are most at risk. So here's an idea. Yes and no. I think that, uh, so to be 100% um, clear here, I think that Andrew Yang had a very uh, poignant message about uh, with the economy, with the gains in the economy, we should be seeing some of those gains. And we are. We have seen. We've gone from a unlimited work hour day to a 18 work hour day, from an 18 work hour day to a 16 to a 12 work hour day, from a 12 work hour day to an eight work hour day. And we've done that since the industrial revolution. That is good because with that excess production, people should see some benefit from that. They should be able to work less and to focus more on different tasks and specialize in non-monetary items. They should be able to do that. So I do agree that- actually. I mean. What you can do is um, evenly distribute the work week. I mean, if uh, there's X yeah. amount unemployment, decrease the work week by Y amount, and then you can see virtually no unemployment, for example. Um, I suppose that's a lot. Well, have a 30-hour work week. You see a lot of places qualify you as full-time at 35 to 36 hours now. You know, we're gradually mm-hmm. scaling it down. I mean, we um, are. and it's because we are able to produce so much more because of automation. That's very true. That's very true. And I suppose um, one way to look at it is this is like a, a taster of what UBI would look like with this um, basically emergency relief bill that we're all going to get. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about China, because I know, Stephen, you want to get to China. And one of the big questions I want to talk about is, is China winning the messaging war on this? Because, I mean, it started there, but um, it seems a little bit more contained, though, you know, I know we really can't trust China to be honest about this. So, but like right now, they're projecting calm and confidence in the face of everything. They're providing massive help to other nations. Um you know, are they winning this messaging war? Because I know that we definitely need to co- to contain the threat here at home before we start spending massive amounts of money abroad. Absolutely need to contain the problem here first. But what could the U.S. be doing to coordinate a global response? Because we really aren't doing that right now. And isn't this the exact type of crisis that requires coordination? So there's a really good opportunity here for the United States to step up, to be the global leader again, and to at least get a coordinated response, even as we solve problems here at home. But we don't have a coordinated response on a national level. I know, but if if we did, couldn't we also have a coordinated, or at least try to coordinate a global response of some kind, so that way we can contribute to winning, you know, to to leading this crisis instead of allowing China to, to dominate in this crisis? And I think you can look at the past, what, four or five presidencies to see the how America has changed in their leading a crisis sort of situation. You go all the way back to 1992 and the Gulf War, or is it 1991? I'm sorry, I was one or two at the time, so I don't remember. But um, you go back to that time, and you had the United States, when, the, uh, when Saddam invaded Kuwait, lead a coalition of people to stop that from happening. We went out and we built that coalition. Jumpstart to 9-11. To 
even though the United States was incredibly forceful about how we decided to uh, push into both uh, Afghanistan in 2003, Iraq, we still pushed in with a coalition of partners. We basically kind of said, hey, you're going in with us. But we did ask them to go in with us all the same. Jump to 2008. The United States again tries to lead the financial, I guess, uh, pushback against the the Great Recession, which then inspired global consequences, et cetera, et cetera. Then jump to 2000, uh, 2020, where we're at right now. And 2020, we, oh, well, I guess 2012, Libya and uh, the United States is leading from behind. I'm sorry, I forgot that. 2020, we're not leading at all anymore. We are only focusing on the United States and we're not really focusing on the United States at that. And that is a, it's a major problem and it's not going to change. The, the United States, I agree, Nick, should be leading all those other problems, except for <laughs> except for 9/11, where we went we went wrong. Um, but all those other problems, the coalition effort to combat the problem at hand made it that much easier to combat it, that much easier to solve the problem, even if it wasn't an easy problem. Regardless, a a multilateral world effort helps, and the World Health Organization has been shit at that. We thought this organization, this international structure would be great to help us with this. And what we're seeing is that they are they are hamstrung by global politics. I saw a interview with a, uh, oh my gosh, what is the news organization? It was a news organization out of uh, Taipei, I believe. And they were doing it on Taiwan. And what the global response to um, Taiwan was, how it was better or worse than China. And the world health person they were interviewing shut down completely didn't want to talk about it because they were so afraid of responses from the PRC people's Republic of China. And that is the world we live in without United. And I'm going to sound super liberal here. That is the world we live in without the United States pushing to lead a global effort because apparently nobody else can China can't because they're lying about everything. Russia can't because they just want to conquer everything. The European union can't because they're fighting amongst themselves and the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization can't, because it's just impotent. Apparently, it, it, it's an it, it's a not. It's supposed to be apolitical. It's supposed to be just an international organization, and I think that they just don't want to weigh in on, um, on geopolitics because they have a job to do, which is not geopolitics. Yeah, I mean they they don't want to weigh in on Taiwan because they don't want to upset china which is you know a pretty important it, uh, player in this but it's I mean, not yeah, that like as, the who you, is selfish they just want to help people well that's you know? that's the I, that's the problem isn't it because yeah that they're apolitical and great good for them but it requires two sides to be apolitical on something right i mean that's we're seeing that in domestic politics every single day it only takes one side of something to turn it into a political thing that's why it infuriates me when people say like Oh, the Republicans have politicized. The, you know, so, or they try to be like, "Well, both sides have politicized this now." Like, no, it can start with one side. Like, all it takes is for the Republicans to politicize something or the Democrats to politicize something, and then it is politicized, whether the other side actually wants it to be or not. It becomes that, and it's the same way in global politics, kind of as you said, where if China wants to politicize Taiwan, then guess what? It's politicized, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
I guess you can be gutsy and have an opinion without necessarily um, becoming a political football. Like, IRC will take a very firm stance on humanitarian crises, and it can get political, but that doesn't necessarily stop them from doing good work. So, same thing with, like, Oxfam, for example. It could make their job harder. I mean, same thing with, like, Oxfam. Like, Oxfam can have some political opinions that I just, I'm not necessarily a big fan of, but I don't think that necessarily discounts any of their good work. And I think the big problem is that when that political question interferes with the job of the um, organization in question, so the World Health Organization in this portion, if Taiwan has had such an amazing response to this COVID outbreak, why aren't they being pushed as an example to emulate? And the reason why they are not is because the PRC hates them. That's not an acceptable. That's that is political. If you want to do that, that is political, and you are playing politics. You're not non-political. You're just playing the politics that you think are best for you, and that's not what the international organization is supposed to be. That's uh, and that's why I like I say we need a different person or a different player to step up who can take those politics and go. I don't care that they're that you hate the PR that you hate Taiwan. Taiwan has had a fantastic response to this, and you should be emulating it. Very good point. Oh yeah, that's the thing though. We need we need someone to step up and to help defend these institutions to actually be apolitical, or to at least push back against you know the politicization yeah. of it from people like from you know, places like China. And that's why that's the type of thing that I'm saying right now is that the United States can do all of this very easily without shifting any resources away from our domestic response to this without without losing any credibility at all. We could just do this and it would cost us nothing and it would not in any way distract from the the real focus, which right now has to be domestic. It absolutely has to be domestic, but we can do all of this. We can still support these institutions and still lead a global response while also at the same time leading a really kick-ass national response. But instead of doing one or the other or both, we're doing neither. Well, you just need someone who has Trump's ear and to kind of like wiggle in a little idea. And he'll hold on <sighs> to on. it. He's, he's so anti-institution. Yeah, he he no hates way. the no, no, entire no, no, no. concept I mean... of it. So it's it's no good. Well, like, if you're concerned, for example, that, you know, China's bullying Taiwan, you know, you just need someone in the White House to kind of convince Trump that his agenda needs to be, you know, maybe more pro-Taiwan, for example. Well, but it's not going to happen while he's... But he's all, okay, my problem there is he's going to do it wrong. <laughs> he's, uh, he's... So he, it is right to do that. It is correct. But it's like killing Soleimani. Is, yeah, Soleimani should have died. There's a right and a wrong way to do it, and you did it the wrong way. <laughs> Man, that feels like ages ago. That whole like but, increased tension right. with the wrong. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it was a month ago, two months. I know. No, but, but like it was years ago in, in that 2020 was, time. There's like A C and sorry, there's like um A C and B C or whatever before Corona. After <laughs> before Corona and after yeah. Corona. Yeah. yeah. Before Corona. Kind of like there was before well, Trump, after Trump, and now, well, we don't even think of that term anymore. But. You laugh, though. I mean, this is such a game changer that, yeah, it, it is going to be like, we think about how things were before and after this. It's going to change things on that fundamental of a level. 
I want to get back to the public diplomacy concerning the China or if, the People's yeah, Republic is, of China. Is China as well. winning this uh, this messaging it, campaign? And I, I really think it is because it has a public diplomacy campaign being released. And I I'm I have a whole bunch of thoughts on this, but basically the biggest threat to the CCP is domestic stability. And this hits domestic stability in two ways in China. First way is economically, like we were already talking about, it crushes the economy. The CCP is built on legitimacy of economic progress. And it also hurts domestic stability because why wasn't China prepared for this, better prepared for this? So you're going to, you have to confront both those cases. So China has taken two steps to doing this. Number one, and this is from the, uh, Oh my gosh, there is a, um, from Stanford. There was a paper from Stanford. Um, China has taken two steps to this. The first one is internal messaging and all their internal messaging has been, and I'm sure if you've ever worked in a work in a uh, workplace, you've heard this positive language. So all talking about positive language. It's not the number of people who were infected. It's the number of people who recovered. It's not the baby born with COVID. It's the baby that was happily born without COVID and et cetera and et cetera, which to an extent, I'm not going to knock on it that much. Public uh, positive language can help out. It can be a help. But when all you're doing is pub, uh, positive language, you are lying to the people. And that's what they're doing. They're lying to their people to cover up kind of what's happening. Like what I said earlier about um, they've reported 2,300 deaths. People are estimating 40,000 to 46,000 deaths. That is a lie to their own people, but it is also a lie to the international community and their international community response and public diplomacy against that has been a lot more aggressive. And it has been, you've seen the, uh, the lies coming out saying that it was the United States army that created the COVID virus and but you can't prove it's wrong. They're gaslighting. They're doing exactly what the, uh, um, the oh, what is it? The, it wasn't, yeah, the Tea Party. What the Tea Party was doing about all their different stuff. Well, you can't prove that what I'm saying is wrong. I'm just, I'm just bringing it up for debate. I just, you know, and they're pulling a Russia. They're putting so many lies into the atmosphere that you can't distinguish one from the other from the other. And now you don't know that it's China's fault because they've lied about the the deadliness of this disease. They've lied about the how infectious how it is. Chinese you don't remember is that in the Western infosphere because this sounds like you're talking about their domestic propaganda. What propaganda by China am I being exposed to and possibly falling for as a Westerner? In America? So there is the English language of the um, Global Times, which is a global newspaper. There is uh, oh, what is it? Um, there is a there is a huge public relations effort going on. I have a whole bunch of things up here. Sorry, there's a um, public relations effort going on in China, hailing China's efforts to co- curb COVID nineteen in Africa specifically. Right. So there is. See, oh, so that's what I want to to bring up is is it's one thing to put out things that most everyone could be like, yeah, it's obviously a lie that the U.S. government had something to do with it. Like most people are well-informed or smart enough to see that that's just outright false in the united but states it's, no no no. but it's it's one thing to do that but they're also doing actual real life on the ground as you said like major humanitarian efforts in africa they're sending masks and and ventilators and everything to italy and they're making a huge point of it and promoting it out there and that's actually things that they really are doing and it's verifiable that they're doing it and they're winning in that way too where they're showing 
how much more competent they want everyone to think that they are, while the United States is not just not only doing nothing about it, but they're projecting the exact opposite response. I mean, we but in that way we, we're showing that we have no competency to do this, either nationally sure, or globally. In, in that way, they're also. Um... Where they, they are giving out all these masks, all these ventilators to Italy and to other countries, and these countries are finding out that these the equipment they're getting is defective. They're having to be recalled. And so China actually put out through the Global Times this morning a statement saying, if you are going to complain about the equipment that we give you, regardless of whether it's bad or not, just we won't give you any equipment ever. It is a bullying tactic. It is a complete bullying tactic. They had China at the beginning of this um, crisis bought up the global supply of face masks. They bought the entire global supply for good reason. They needed it. But now the only country that produces those face masks in mass quantities is China. So they are leveraging that economic power to play bully with all these countries that are hurting. Which, you know, side note, like, it's so hard to talk about stuff like that right now because even I'm like, the domestic is should be front and center right now. Absolutely, like more so than at any time in our history, we need to focus on domestic. But we shouldn't forget about that that China is dominating right now and making us look really bad. That's going to be a problem. Okay, so the only other thing that we should be aware of that's happening in China is the disappearance of dissenting voices. And that's not just um, reporters who are going there, but it is reporters as well. There has been, um, let me get his name right here. Give me one second. Uh, they're a Chinese tycoon. Um, you can find this on the New York Times. Uh, and I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Ren Ziking uh, also has vanished. He criticized the CCP's um, response to this, and now he's gone. There's been multiple reporters that have disappeared. There have been people that have criticized them that have disappeared. And so the more credit that people keep giving China because, hey, they built a hospital in eight days, the more you are legitimizing their response to this crisis. And their response to this crisis is horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And and we all, we all knew it was coming. I mean, this is the perfect you could not ask for a better way for an authoritarian government to get rid of people it doesn't like yes because all they have to do is be like oh this person's got it let's get them in quarantine and then they just disappear and then they're gone forever it's so easy for them to to do that and that's why that type of authoritarianism is just so terrifying is because i mean as much as people like you know get on the president's case about how he's like a wannabe authoritarian and stuff like you still can't do that here like, you can't do that kind of thing here. And thank God for that. Mm -hmm. We never want to be in a place where, where that's even considered at all. But in China, it's so yeah. easy. Because they've already kind of been doing that, and now they just have the perfect excuse. Yeah. So when these people say authoritarian dictatorships have a better response to this, they don't. They do not. They have a more efficient response to stopping the virus dead in its tracks, but at what cost? Yeah. And the trade-offs aren't there. Yeah. So for fun, Steven, I know you've been wanting to talk about Lord <laughs> of the Rings for a while. And my wife and I just finished a rewatch of the trilogy. Extended edition, of course, because that is the only way to watch it. So 
what are your thoughts on what is it? The orcs oh. are actually the 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 there victims were, in in the have trilogy? you seen the entire? I, yeah, no, you should see my face right now. My face is giddy. Everyone hearing this, my face is giddy because I've been wanting this forever. So <laughs> this is my pet thing. So the orcs in Lord of the Rings, they're immediately evil. It's like D&D, right? You're classified as an evil character if you're part of this one race. Oh, well, you <laughs> we're classifying an entire race as evil. There isn't a single good orc out there in the entire world. No, 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 no. Have you seen the living conditions they live in? It is suppression, it is oppression, and it is the people, the humans and the elves, keeping these orcs down. They are rising up with Saruman because they see Saruman as their ticket to being better. It's like the hyenas in Lion King, I say. So, I see where you're coming from, Stephen. I would even take it a little step further to... Um, so, you remember the... What are they called? The Easterlings, right? The Haradrim? Yeah. The guys who who come up from the south and they're all like, they're all brown and you know they're turbaned and so mm-hmm. of course they're considered evil. But you, you know the line that because um, at one point Faramir is like, is this guy really evil? Like what what lies were he was he told that led him to here? Did he actually even want to be here in the first place? And I'm like, that's yeah. a good point. Like, come on, they probably were told like. Yeah, we don't even know what they were told, and that's the that's the problem is that we don't get their perspective. Maybe, maybe, and there's another scene where like where Saruman goes to the the old village people, right? They burned like, your they village. Burned your and they, they kicked you, you off out. your land. Take it back. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like, if if that's what actually happened, like, you know, okay, yeah. I kind of get why they're upset. Like, like not, you know, it doesn't just justify like a genocide of. The, the world of men and elves. But you but get like, the anger. You get still, why like, they are fighting. And they're not evil. They are the, the one guy in the, the rock people. I forget what they're. The mountain people. Hill people. Whatever they are. He yells out, murderers! Obviously, the people of Rohan did something to his people that he could yell out, murderers. That is not... <laughs> this is not a one-sided debate here. There are two sides. So it's funny that um, it's funny that you bring this up because back during because um, you know in in grad school we do like a history of mm-hmm. history class right like we we talk about all the the theories and how they've changed from from one to the next and and one of the ones that we talked about and the one that I took as like my assignment to give a presentation on was Orientalism hence the name of the podcast and everything right the idea of how we view the other and we twist it and turn it into this monolithic they're all like this they're all evil that sort of thing and i actually in my presentation i took some clips from lord of the rings i contrasted the one where um you know it's the it's the weird speaking brown guy who like pledges his allegiance to saruman and he cuts his hand he's like we will fight for you and i was like okay that's clearly like orientalist right like it's you're viewing this one guy as like this weird foreign other that's clearly bad obviously and i contrast it with this the rousing speech of the men of the west and the good people who are who are all noble and just and i was like yeah that's the men of the west is inherently anti-eastern the men of the west and it is yeah but no it's it's interesting that you say specifically the orcs because um i mean 
we don't see any good deeds that are we done. We barely by them. see. Okay, and so you would think that the orcs were just mindless little cretins running around, except for the one experience that Frodo and Sam have on that one watchtower mountain where they start fighting each other uh, because someone's taking something and there's obviously a lot of divergence between the orcs. Even the Orakai, when the uh, two other hobbits, Sam and Mary, are taken, not Sam and Mary, Mary and Pippin are taken, we're not going further till we've had a breather. Obviously, there is not a hive mind here. They all have their own minds. They're all trying to get by their lives the best they can, and this is the best place they can do it. I mean, this is the... You want to talk about... uh, Terrorism, recruiting terrorists. This is how you get. A, they grow up in this world where martyrdom, where um, extremism is venerated. It is the best thing. And they've seen their friends and family die. And you know what? Maybe their friends and family died doing something shitty, but they still saw them die. And in that case, they're going to join the cause right away again. And so it is a campaign to win the hearts and minds of the orcs that the people of the West should be waging. So, Stephen, are you saying that if if they just didn't have Sauron, right? Like if they had if they had a leader, the orcs did, who who really wanted to to make peace. Do you think they could have done if it? If they had a leader that really wanted, so this is the this is the tragedy. If there's a tra- Greek tragedy in this play, it's that. The people of the West would never accept the orcs. So even if they had someone that wanted to make amends, wanted to be all nice, etc., etc., there would never actually be one because he'd go up and he'd be killed. There'd be no way that the steward of Gondor would accept their help. There's no way that... I forget what Legolas's dad's name is. That wasn't actually in the books. There's no way he'd help. No one would help. And... The only way for them to assert themselves in this world is through violent actions. And there is a story to be told there about a certain place in the Middle East that uh, can seemingly only exert its political influence through violent actions, which isn't great, but is what we kind of have reduced it to. And until you give them more options, that's what's going to happen. Ah, so the orcs are Iran in this <laughs> Yes. Okay, we'll go with Iran. Like, you're either going with Iran or Palestine. There's multiple. Iran, Iran, Palestine, so, Lebanon, well, and what do you want to do? There's a whole bunch of them. When you when the only option that you give someone yes, is violence. that's what they'll resort to. They're going to exactly. choose violence. That's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen and Matthew for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Remember to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and hopefully we'll see you next time.